War, medicine, and data collection have a long and sustained history. The famous World War I doctor, Mary Merritt Crawford, noted that a war benefits medicine more than it benefits anybody else. Crawford was the only woman doctor of the important American hospital in France during World War I that was responsible for creating the modern ambulance corps as they rescued wounded soldiers from the trenches. As the story goes, in the early stages of the Great War, wounded soldiers had to be put on horse-drawn carriages for rides to a train station and then wait around for another few hours before getting to a hospital. In the meantime, infection would set in and doctors found themselves performing hundreds of thousands of unnecessary amputations in order to save lives. Speed was of the essence, and something needed to change. Horrified by the carnage, the images of soldiers returning with gangrene and the mass amputations, then U.S. Ambassador Myron T. Herrick contacted every friend he knew with a motor vehicle and organized runs back and forth from the wartime front, bringing in wounded soldiers early enough that they could be saved from amputation. The Ambulance Corps was just one of many advancements, including antiseptics and anesthesia, in medicine and technology that made during the war as the imaging data from the trenches kept pouring in. And these are technologies that have saved millions of lives to this day. We welcome you back to the Digital Cancer Twin podcast. In today's episode, we explore the nature and connection of medicine, data imaging, and the war industry as we delve deeper into the construction of the digital cancer twin. And while military incentive might always be on the periphery, hope remains in the small scale stories of courageous humans willing to work for the good of all rather than the selfish desires of the few. And so with that, we turn back to the digital cancer twin project itself, a piece of technology funded by military spending through an offshoot of the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA. Dr. Amber Simpson again. Yeah, so going back a little bit um, to the the context, so I don't even remember what year now the Moonshot Initiative was launched, and this was uh, then Vice President Biden's um, initiative to end cancer. Vice President Biden said that with a new moonshot, America can cure cancer. Last month, he worked with this Congress to give scientists at the National Institutes of Health the strongest resources that they've had in over a decade. So tonight, I'm announcing a new national effort to get it done. And because he's gone to the mat for all of us on so many issues over the past 40 years, I'm putting Joe in charge of mission control. For the loved ones we've all lost, for the families that we can still save. Let's make America the country that cures um, But the Moonshot Initiative was really centered around sort of refocusing some of the activities that were already going on and unifying some of the different activities across different federal agencies, one of them being the National Cancer Institute and the Department of Energy. So the Department of Energy, they're the folks that do all the high-performance computing work. So they also uh, do work for the, the U.S. military. Um, they, they support a lot of different types of activities. You can, you can look up to see what the different um, national labs in the Department of Energy portfolio do. Um, and so, so Biden had said, you know, can you take this wonderful research that the National Cancer Institute is funding and merge it in some way with the high performance computing work of the Department of Energy? 
And so thus, this was part of the Moonshot Initiative and the NCI-DOE collaboration. Um, and so I was invited to a meeting uh, to go to the National Labs, uh, to um, the National Lab in California, um, to collaborate with uh, uh, some folks from the Department of Energy and NCI in a workshop to figure out some of the things that we could do to bridge gaps between, you know, machine learning, high-performance computing, and and cancer cancer research. Um, this was at Livermore uh, National Lab in Livermore, California. And so it was a it was a phenomenal group of people that you don't normally hang out with. So a bunch of people from the Department of Energy who are very high-performance computing oriented. They're not necessarily familiar with the language of medicine and biomedicine. Um, and then there were also people from, you know, NCI and from different programs at NCI and some of us researchers in the mix, uh, basically doing a big brainstorming session to see what are some of the things that we could do together and what are some of the things that would make sense to start mobilizing resources around specifically. And so we came up with, I think there were four different questions that we wound up coming up with. And one of them was the cancer twin and the concept of the cancer twin. Um, and that's the one that that we decided as a group to run with and that, you know, NCI would provide some funding around um, and some energy. And so thus was born this this group that would come together. Um, and that was sort of the impetus for the whole thing. And that was really before people were talking about digital twins. That was in what year was that? I think 2019 or 2018. I think that might have been 2018. Um, and we really, you know, that was before, you know, digital twin was really something from manufacturing at that point. And so the thinking about making, uh, you know, simulated patients was another aspect of this. So can you simulate patients from a bunch of data, that kind of thing. Um, and that, that was the start. And then, um, that got us thinking about, Oh, okay. Digital twins. How do we how do we use that? How do we design that? Now, in your work and in the history of this project, it seems it all began for you during your time at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Institute in New York City. While there, you worked with the radiologist Richard Doe. It was interesting because I think this was 2019. I remember he came to me and he was like, "Oh, I have this idea to." do analysis of the radiology reports and we can do this and that and this and that. And I remember thinking at the time, this is a bit crazy, but I trust him because we've worked together for so long. So we'll do it. And I, I, you know, I obviously wouldn't do that with just anyone, but I was kind of like, okay, yeah, okay, we'll do this. We'll try this. And when we were, when I wrote the first uh, uh, digital twin grant that funded a lot of the work, I remember at that time thinking, I wonder if this is going to work. I wonder if we're going to be able to do it. And then, you know, he was absolutely right, of course. And um, but it was that trust that was built up from that, pro the you know, the longstanding relationship that let me kind of say, OK, let's let's see what happens. Let's throw everything up in the air and see see what we catch. And so Richard is an expert in imaging and making sense of oncology reports relying on what almost seems like a preternatural intuition. It sounds like he's almost an artist. Yes, yes. And he's, that's his thing. Like he, I remember going to tumor board meetings. So a tumor board, um, so if you have cancer, 
Um, and if it's a, a complex case, uh, your oncologist will often present it at a tumor board meeting. And it's an interdisciplinary meeting where you have uh, surgeons there, radiation oncologists, interventional radiologists, oncologists, and um, the patient's case gets presented. And then the interdisciplinary group can comment on what they think, uh, what they think that patient should, uh, sh what treatment they should receive next. And so I've been in tumor board meetings where, so typically they're run by a radiologist who's scrolling through all the images on a big screen. So it's, it's people in an auditorium, you know, looking, not a big auditorium, but looking up at a, at a big screen, looking at a CT scan or an MRI scan or an ERC, ERCP or, or whatever. And, um, and I remember we were looking at a CT scan and, no one could figure out what was wrong with this patient. It didn't look like they had anything. They did. They had no cancer. And he just, everyone was trying to rush him along and get him to finish. And he was like, wait, 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 no. And he just kind of slowed the meeting down and he's scrolling through the CT scan and he's scrolling and scrolling. And then everyone wants to move on to the next patient because they don't think this patient has cancer. And he says, wait a second. And he starts fiddling with, you know, fiddling with the, the dials on the software and pretty soon you see this giant tumor appear like it's gigantic and it's a, a clearly a pedocellular carcinoma, like a liver cancer, a very aggressive primary liver cancer. And it was just this moment where it was like, oh, wow, he, that's the skill right there. Right. This is a person that sees these scans over and over again every single day and has a gut feeling and a gestalt for when something is like that. And, you know, and, and so that patient, something different happened with that patient because of that, that, you know, five minutes in that meeting. And so we've done a number of projects together. We've written a ton of papers. Every single one is predicated on a hypothesis that he has, you know, some kind of like, I think I see this or, um, you know, there's these patients that go on to this poor outcome, but these ones don't. And I think it has to do with this. And it tends to be like a visual, something visual that he, that he really, a gestalt. Um, and so it's interesting. So another radiologist came to me with a project and his project was, I've got these 500 patients. I can't see a difference, but maybe the computer can. Turns out to be the worst project I've ever done because the computer can't find a difference. And why would the computer find a difference if a human can't find a difference or if there's no hypothesis for why there would be a difference. And so whenever anybody comes to me with any kind of project, whether it's imaging, whether it's, you know, some other type of data, it's always, you know, why do you think this is going to work? Like what, what's the story here? What's the biological rationale what are you seeing? Like, what is, why are we doing this? And if that can't be answered, I am not going to send a computer to try to do it because it's a huge mistake and it's a huge exercise in overfitting and torturing of data. How does Richard do it? it it'll be something like that. Like he'll say, you know, we'll look at say a, a, a liver tumor, like a, let's say a cholangiocarcinoma, which is a, an aggressive rare liver tumor. And he'll say, you know, I think the border of the tumor, I, I've noticed that the ones that have kind of a craggy border versus the ones that have a smooth border, I think they have a different outcome, you know, and then 
we can say, okay, so how do we capture a craggy border in artificial intelligence or image processing or something like that? Um, and so, or he'll say, you know, I think if you look at the heterogeneity of this of this type of tumor versus the heterogeneity of this other of other type of tumor, I think this patient's going to do worse. And so it's it's things like that. And sometimes it's you know, oh, I notice patients that have this other clinical characteristic. I don't know, like let's say a mutation and an IDH1 mutation. You know, I've noticed that those patients that have that, and then maybe another thing that that might be predictive of survival, that might be a biomarker. And then we'll investigate that kind of idea. It seems like you're trying to translate the human work that Richard does into an artificial agent capable of doing the same thing. What's the actual technological makeup of the current digital cancer twin AI? So right now, our current version is really based off of um, the radiology reports. So not even looking at the images yet, but looking at the radiology reports and trying to generate essentially a cancer map across all types of cancer using natural language processing of the report. So this is interesting because you were talking about, you know, radiology and, and gestalt and that kind of thing. A report is essentially capturing that gestalt because it's something that's actually written by a human. It's written in a very structured way, the way that they do it, but it but it is written by a human. So it's it's taking an image and it's transforming it into text. And then we do analysis of that text. Now, someday we'd like to remove the the human from that necessarily and look at the actual images, but that's computationally really hard to do. It's a lot of data to move around, um, especially because we're talking about, you know, 700,000 scans that we use for this. So looking at the reports is substantially easier than looking at the images. What data sets are you drawing from? Are these purely visual or do you include the interpretations of medical specialists? It's a bit of both. So they will say, so each section is very carefully laid out. So for the reports, these are patients with cancer. So it's a cancer report, right? So, you know, you're not looking at a general diagnosis. You're really looking at cancer. So there are sections for the liver, for lung, lymph nodes, et cetera, et cetera, that are struck. We call them structured. Um, and then within each one, there's a description, but that description is also structured. And the radiologist uses pull-down menus to describe that, and there's a standard language that's been described. In some sense, it seems like you're saying there's already an algorithm in place, a human algorithm, for filling out these reports, and that what your team is trying to do is bring these reports and the visualizations together to create a larger map. That's right. And so they have these structured sections, and then they have what's called an impression section, and that's for freeform text. But the thing to know about radiology is that there's a lot of, lot of scans to look at, a lot of reports, and you don't want to spend a lot of time as a radiologist or as an oncologist or a surgical oncologist reviewing the reports. So you don't want to, you don't want to go on and on and on and on. You want it to be succinct and you want it to be really, here's the structure, here's exactly what we want to say so that you can then um, refer to other reports because patients are getting imaged constantly when they have cancer, right? They're getting imaged, you know, 
every four to six weeks potentially. So, 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 you know, a radiologist doesn't have a lot of time to go through um, necessarily. Um, so there is a bit of a time aspect to all of this too. You don't just want to, you know, drone on and on and on and write pages and pages of a report because nobody's going to read it. There's an important distinction here. It looks like there's a broad range of cancer images from different patients as they develop in different bodies. But then there's also the evolution and development of cancer in a particular body. The data set then is a mix of singular patients and their history. So one patient can have multiple reports over time, and that's going to produce different results than getting just one set of reports for 20 different patients. Yeah, so it's a bit of a mix. So you've got patients that have one or two reports. You've got patients that have dozens of reports. And then you don't know necessarily what that means. Does a patient have one or two reports because they had an aggressive cancer and they died? Or do they have one or two reports because they were feeling great, they got cured and they went home? Or did they go to another hospital, right? Maybe they sought care locally and, and saw a different oncologist. So these are all the things you have to think about and some of the, you know, the noisiness that's in the data that comes out of these reports. So the goal of the DCT then, once it's up and running, is to perform the same gestalt-type interpretations of these tumor images that cancer experts like Richard Doe perform, and then from there do advanced predictive modeling. Once we can see the cancer, then we might be able to imagine how it might develop? Yeah, the hope is that it's, it's a bit of both, but it's an ability to look across all can cancers. So our cancer twin is interested in how cancer metastasizes. So metastases refers to the second cancer that you get. So you have a primary cancer. So when we say you have colon cancer, you have liver cancer, uh, you have a, a, a neurological cancer, that's your first cancer, but then you metastasize, right? And it's the metastases that actually kill you. Um, and so our digital twin is interested in that pattern of metastases that happens. Um, and, and we don't really know as a cancer community necessarily across every cancer, the patterns of metastases, like we kind of do because we study it retrospectively now. So we'll go back and we'll look at, you know, a, a th say a thousand patients and we'll look at, at how cancer metastasized across those thousand patients. But we can't really do that manually for 700,000 patients. So there's a bit of a selection bias that happens when we, when we do these smaller studies because we're saying, okay, we're just going to look at this cancer. We're just going to look at the ones that maybe had um, surgery because then we can kind of say that at this point in time, everyone was alive and had a primary cancer and then they metastasized. Um, but that doesn't tell us about the whole cancer population, right? And so that's, that's, I think, the beauty of what we're trying to do is that we can actually study the progression, the, the, the response and progression um, over time across everything in a way that we couldn't before. So the goal is not necessarily about coming up with new treatments. This is a diagnostic tool. It's not like this AI is saying something like, now that we see how the cancer is developing, we suggest these treatments. Rather, it's going to say something more like, given all the data we have, it looks like in your particular case, this is likely how your cancer will develop. And then a human doctor can offer possible treatment solutions. 
It could be both. So an example that came out of this recently was that um, there's a, a subset of patients um, and an oncologist uh, that Richard works with came to him and said, you know, we think in this subset of patients, in the subset of melanoma patients that have X, Y, and, and Z, um, we think that there's a poor outcome happening. And so Richard went back pretty easily, looked at those patients and said, yep, you're right. And then they designed a clinical trial for those patients. Because what would have happened otherwise is someone, that oncologist would have had to say, I have this idea, I think something's going on. Now we're going to go back and collect manually these thousand patients. Then we're going to analyze it. That's a, you know, that's a year, right? Because you've got somebody that's got to manually go through all the records. Even if you have clean data, it still takes time to get through it. But because of the way we have all these annotated reports, we can act, we have a tool that we've made that they can actually look at subsets of, of uh, different cancers to see if there's a, a outcome differences. That's fascinating. The outcomes and the modeling are only as good as the data that's involved. And as part of that data, I'm guessing that these reports are very detailed. But are there important metadata types that are currently missing in the model? For example, you talked about not being able to track why there might be a limited amount of CT scans for a patient, not knowing whether it's because a patient's healed or died. How significant would that data be? So we can, and we, we can and we do capture all that other data, like we capture, you know, death date and all those types of things. So we can do that, um, but it's a bit complicated and it's a bit noisy. It's actually harder in Canada. Like in the US, they're better at tracking death and then letting the, the hospitals know if someone's died. In Canada, sometimes we're, we're search, searching obituaries to see, um, and, and searching obituaries to see, you know, did they die of a car accident or did they die? Was it likely that they died of cancer? Then we can say, oh, they died of cancer, and that becomes an update that we can do. Um, there's also things like treatment. So treatment's uh, something that's hard to extract from records. And that's because chemotherapy, it's complicated. So you get, you know, you get a certain number of cycles at a particular dose. The dose can be changed. Um, so there's a time element, there's a quantity element. And then, so, and that's not always well reflected necessarily in our medical record that can be extracted easily. So that data is a bit hard to get. Um, but I think, I think what it shows, though, and what we're now seeing is clinicians understanding that if there's better data, that we can do better analysis. And so it used to be the case that computer scientists spent a lot of time trying to make, you know, trying to take really crappy data and turn it into something. And I think now there's an understanding. And this is partly because of the training programs we have, like a lot of the the, the folks that are graduating from um in medicine, you know, they understand that you can do more if you you take some time to provide better data. And I think this is certainly true in Canada, where we're trying really hard to move away from uh, um, medical records that are handwritten um, and scanned and things like that into something that's actually digital. Rather than collecting broad swaths of data, why not focus specifically on collecting as much data as you can from a single patient? A patient zero, so to speak, collecting blood pressure, heart rate, subjective experience, context, history, and so on. Rather than letting a digital twin develop from multiple bodies, why not create a hyper-focused individual twin of one person and then work from there? 
Yeah, for sure. So, you know, we've thought about doing things like motion trackers. Other people have thought of this too. We're not the only ones. Um, you know, we have a, uh, we have colleagues that have a gate lab. So they put motion sensors on you and you walk around and they capture your gait because gait is another, um, it's another biomarker, right? It tells you something about how someone's feeling. I, uh, I had a colleague that used to say a surgeon, just look at their ankles. I can tell you by looking at the, their ankles, how they do. And that's of course, because of diabetes and other comorbidities, um, that, that really affect our overall health. Um, and we have something called the get up and go test in medicine. So, so how are you recovering from surgery? Well, can you get up out of the bed and can you walk down the hall? You know, those are all, that's all biomarkers, right? That's all information that we don't necessarily encode. We're not taking pictures of swollen ankles and putting them in medical records. So we are certainly, there's things that we just don't collect, right? And so, I mean, even weight, like, do you get weighed every time you go to the doctor's office? Not really. I mean, and when you're a cancer patient and you're going to the doctor's office all the time, we don't weigh you all the time because frankly, you don't feel well and don't particularly want to stand on a scale. So even measurements like weight aren't consistently done because there's this other aspect of just being practical about what's collected. Um, even imaging data, right? We don't image you every day. We don't image you every week. So we don't, we don't know for sure when your cancer recurred because we're only going to catch it when we actually image you. We're only going to do genomics when we have a piece of your tumor, which means that we've done a biopsy on you or you've had some kind of surgery. Thinking about the development of ambulance technology in World War I, as mentioned in the intro, it seems rare that these types of advancements in medical technology develop independently. Usually, there's a whole suite of technologies that arise at the same time as medical experts start discovering new problems. So it seems like a possible tech solution here would be to find a way to get patients to be able to get these images of their cancer daily while at home, because then you would have this day-to-day -day developmental history of the metastases, thus increasing the accuracy and preciseness of the AI, right? Well, and folks in medicine would say, does it really help? So there's an overdiagnosis problem that happens, right? That when we do too many tests and the yield of the test isn't high enough, is the test actually worth it? Right? So we, th we think about that a lot in medicine. Um, and we also think about, you know, does it make sense? Is it actually going to change the treatment if we knew they recurred a week earlier? Do those patients actually do better? Or is there something inherently bad about their particular cancer that it doesn't actually help? And in fact, there's studies that have shown that if you delay surgery a little bit, it's actually better because it, it naturally sort of figures out who the best candidates are and who's actually going to survive and thrive after that surgery. You know, it separates out who has the uh, highly aggressive cancer because a surgery is not going to help that person. And that person is still going to die um, quickly afterwards. And in some cases, they've had to have an aggressive procedure done that, it, that affects their quality of life. And so, you know, thinking through these things, it's not exactly black and white. So delaying is sometimes better? That's right. And that's, that's highly unintuitive, right? You would think 
that you should get your cancer out right away. And, and generally, I think that's the standard approach. But I think for a subset of people, it, it actually does make sense to wait. Also, yeah, it, it uh, lends itself to false positive rates and things like that, more data. And I mean, you've obviously talked to Lana James. I think what she's really taught me is that data are imperfect and the, da- the, the data are already biased. So if they're already biased, there's already an issue. This next question is shifting gears a bit. You've been working with these cancer images for years now. Your thinking and thought process has been tuned towards getting a machine to approach and see these images in the same way humans do, to learn to see and interpret them differently. Have you found that your own approach to these images has changed? You're not a medical professional, but these images, have they taken on different meaning for you over time? I mean, I can actually read and interpret them in... Yeah, for sure. And... I, I am I am highly trained to only do certain ones that I have experience with, though. So if if uh, you showed me sort of an ex a random X ray from somebody that came into an emergency department, I would have no idea what I'm looking at. But I've seen a lot of the same kind of thing over and over again. Yes, I think what I I see them through the eyes of my students, which is really interesting. So they don't have that experience, right? So they. Um, um, they look at them and they just think they're data, right? They don't really see. And so sort of walking them through the process of what are we really looking at here? And what is the thing that we're interested in? And I think that for me has been really, really fascinating. So for me, I see life when I look at them. Other people see data um, and getting them to start to see life is, I think, uh, uh, what we what we do as a research group. Or that the there's a human, this is a person, this is this. And also, you know, that goes for when we look at um, plots for papers, you know, each of the dots, that's a person, that dot is a person. So when you decide that you're going to remove a remove a patient from analysis, because they don't meet some arbitrary criteria that you've set, you know, you're basically saying, okay, you don't, you don't get this thing, you don't get access to this thing. Because that's a person. Do you have students who have had those types of eye-opening moments where the data becomes human, so to speak? Yeah, I think that's the process these days of doing a graduate degree with me, that by the time they're done, they're like, oh, this is a person and this is the impact of the work that we're doing. But we don't train people for that right now on the computer science side, right? They just see everything as data. So they come in and they're just like, I just want to hack through data. I want to hack through data. And it's, it's like, no, there's a connection. These are actually people. So how, what's your responsibility to that? These being people. And then how, you know, how does that affect interpretation and and impact and all of these other things that we're, we're trying to do. That's all the questions we have for today. So thank you so much, Dr. Simpson, for spending time with us. At their best, medicine and technology are meant to help humanity, regardless of their funding and development. While it's important to keep in mind the sources of support, what we've heard about the DCT indicates a human-centered approach. Our next episode will be a conversation with Lana James that focuses more on the content of the data used by the digital cancer twin, rather than the development of the technology itself. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. 
The Digital Cancer Twin podcast is a result of a grant distributed by the New Frontiers and Research Fund of the Tri-Councils of Canada and recorded on Queen's University campus. We want to formally acknowledge that Queen's University is situated on the unceded territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe. We are grateful to be able to live, learn, and play on these lands. 